This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. By now, you know that sound. It's the sound of the Home Depot. But what about that sound? You're listening to a set of GE appliances, complete with all you need to keep food fresh, dishes clean, and everything else stress-free. Making this the sound of savings on top brand appliances. The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Get up to 25% off select GE appliances right now. Offer valid January 5th through January 25th, 2023. U.S. only. See store or online for details. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, special guest scholar and musician Yuri Campbell returns to review the key lessons we learned from Nate's discussion with Elijah Wald about his book, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, An American History of American Popular Music. Nate and Yuri evaluate Wald's revisionist history of the evolution of popular music in the 20th century and his claim that Paul Whiteman was the Beatles of the 1920s, or rather that the Beatles were the Paul Whiteman of the 1960s. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, I'm joined for a very special episode of What Have We Learned on Let It Roll with my interlocutor, Dr. Yuri Campbell. Yuri, welcome. Hi, Nate. How you doing? Doing well. And, and we are here to discuss Elijah Wald's book, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll. In our last installment of What Have We Learned, we, we discussed Wald's book, Escaping the Delta, which was about Robert Johnson and the sort of revisionist take on the Mississippi Delta Blues. This book attempts to expand that revisionist take all the way to basically a history of recorded music from John Philip Sousa to essentially 1967 or, or the late 60s Beatles, Dylan, Beach Boys, rock era. So first question, and I asked Elijah this, and he admitted he was trolling with the title. The title, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, is that too over the top for the book? <laughs> it's it's definitely a title that that looks you know that if you read the book it seems like it's just out there to uh, just stoke interest you know to make people pick the book up and and angrily search through it trying to figure out how the Beatles destroyed rock and roll rather than how the Beatles sort of epitomized the greatest things that you could do with rock and roll which I think is what probably most people uh, have in mind as a way of describing the Beatles. Uh, but if you read the book, it doesn't, it, it's not really about how the Beatles destroyed rock and roll or how any, anything destroyed rock and roll. Rock and roll does not end up getting destroyed in the book, as far as I can tell. No, it's more about the process that resulted in the creation of rock and roll and how it came to an end around the time the Beatles 
were peaking. And the Beatles did play a role in changing things by being a self-contained singer-songwriter collective that did not have to cover the latest dance hits and that moved rock and roll from a teeny bopper medium on singles to a, a medium for young adults and eventually old adults on albums, a, a long form thing. But it's, yeah, I, I don't know. I, like comparing it with Peter Doggett's Electric Shock, which I've had Doggett on this show several times, and it's a, a very similar history of recorded music that goes even further. It goes from, you know, the first recordings in the 1870s all the way into the 21st century. I think it's a comparably sound scholarly book, but it doesn't have the contentious angle and it's gotten a lot less attention. So I think we have to credit Wald with at the minimum some marketing shrewdness with the title. Yeah, I, I don't have, I wasn't bothered by the title, but I, I, you know, as you get to the end of the book, that's where the Beatles first show up. It's, it's also uh, not altogether unlike uh, Ward's book on the history of rock and roll. It's, at the very end is the first time that uh, popular music outside of the United States starts to show up really. And, and so, you know, it's only at that moment that you start to, to remember what the title of the book is and that it's, it's obviously there to sort of shake your cage a little bit and get you to pay attention. Uh, I think the only, the only negative thing I would say about it is, is it kind of obscures some of the, some of the interesting points that he, that he makes and some of the, more nuanced uh, observations that the book presents. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's always difficult to present a nuance. And you know, uh, I just forgot the word you use that ends with T I O N. <laughs> nuanced uh, information. It's always difficult to present nuance in any kind of argument. And like when I spoke to Robert Criscow, the great rock critic, he was dismissive of this book. Because essentially his argument was nobody listens to Paul Whiteman anymore, which is completely missing the <laughs> point that, that, you know, in the 1920s, Paul Whiteman had a position analogous to what the Beatles had in the 1960s and played a very similar role in popularizing and legitimizing what was then called jazz in the way the Beatles did with rock. But that is not Walt's point at all, that we're missing this treasure trove of great art from Paul Whiteman, although he does acknowledge, you know, Whiteman made some pretty good records. You know, and so when somebody as smart and and well informed as Chris Gow misses the point, you know that ninety percent of the readers of the book completely whiffed uh, on the point. But I, I want to get back to Escaping the Delta a little bit because I think that this is an an appropriate sequel to Escaping the Delta, and and he summed up Escaping the Delta in this book in a way he did not in that book, and he's he called it an attempt to place the early blues singers like Robert Johnson in the broader context of black popular music rather than treating them as folk artists. And then this is a similar attempt to analyze rock and roll as a pop form rather than a folk form. And I think it contrasts pretty nicely with Ed Ward's history of, of rock and roll, which deliberately focuses on it as a folk form. I mean, he talks about, you know, the, the first, R&B records, he talks about the first country records, he talks about Muddy Waters, he skips over Count Basie, and I'm talking about Edward here, not Elijah Walt, and then goes into rock and roll in the 50s, sort of ignoring its history, you know, the way jump blues emerged out of swing. He mentions it, but he doesn't mention how central it is, and I think there's somebody like Louis Jordan, who's definitively the grandfather of R&B, the way Hank Williams is the grandfather of modern country, 
Louis Jordan would have told you Count Basie was his antecedent, that he was coming straight out of swing and he was just choosing to turn right rather than left at the bebop divide. Like, I'm not going to make art music. I'm going to make dance music and I'm going to get real popular. Anyhow, so I felt that Wald was a good additive and or corrective to what Ed taught us and not to dismiss Ed's teachings of look at music as a cultural history, look at the business forces, the cultural his- the forces, the technological forces. And Wald also focuses on technology and the big technology focuses on in the beginning. And I think it's key to the whole thing is this transition from live music to recorded music. How well do you think he made that argument that that was the big change that's really written the history of music in our entire era? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, that the that Wald's book, to a large extent, revolves around uh, the switch from the culture that stemmed from going to hear music in the live setting with other people, learning to play music in a live setting with other people, learning about innovations, learning about new ideas. Uh, idiosyncratic musical expressions, et cetera, all of that happening in a live setting. And then when recordings come along, it creates, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily occlude or, or, or uh, uh, suffocate the live setting, but what it does is it, is it offers a new uh, uh, format for listening to music and it starts to, to build a new culture that, is, that exists next door to the live setting. So that you have the people who want to go out dancing, but you also have the people who want to begin collecting and who want to begin, uh, you know, talking about and experiencing the music in a more personal, uh, private way, you know, and in a large, I shouldn't say in a large way, but uh, to a great extent, the wall, this, this wall book about just, you know, the Beatles destroying rock and roll or whatever is sort of a, a story of recordings uh, uh, destroying the the sort of momentum or the force, the logic, the experience of everybody kind of being forced to to uh, absorb music and its and its meaning in the same setting. You know what gets destroyed is the sort of unifying force of live music, where for the most part. Uh, you start with pleasing the audience and trying to provide something for them to dance to. And it turns into something that while that still exists in various places and you, you, you have, you know, this constant presence of, of music that uh, is meant to please people to uh, avoid uh, challenging sort of cultural presentations, et cetera. So they're, you know, and they call it, schmaltz or sweet music or these types of things to explain this music that's meant to just go and enjoy it right and to and and to to dance to it and to be with a significant other or with your friends and and this sort of thing that no longer simply rules the roost once you have recordings and you start to have the building of a separate line a separate track of listening to music that's more introspective it's more it's more prone to ideological kind of uh, uh, interventions and and so by the time you get to the Beatles it's not just that the Beatles uh, are this band that that starts making you know 
chamber pop and longer songs and, and songs that don't have to please the audience, you know, and songs that aren't meant to be danced to. It's also that they represent these sort of these sort of cultural and even ideological changes, you know, and, and part of that comes from the ability to sit around and listen to music by yourself or to sit around and talk about music that you've listened to by yourself with other people who have also been listening to it by themselves and, and, and sort of melding together, you know, numerous uh, uh, experiences and ideas that stem from, from listening to the recorded uh, output of these musicians. And, and so I think he really, that's the, to me, that's one of the major strengths of the book. And it's something that you would just not easily grasp by looking at the title you'd have to actually make your way through through the book to start to see that that's one of the major patterns is that there's there's this split that occurs in the cultures that come from or the cultural sort of uh, uh impact and then the subcultures that come from listening to music and let's hear a little bit of recorded music this is a pretty early recording 1915 i want to say this is an artist i learned about i'd heard the name but i really started learning about james reese europe from this book I and mean, this is james reese europe the african-american dance band leader of the teens doing a version of wc handy's west memphis blues And that was James Reese Europe doing a version of W.C. Handy's West Memphis Blues. And I, I picked that one not only because I think Europe is a very important artist who's much under-heralded these days, but also because this is a very early recording by an African-American band performing a massive hit by an African-American songwriter, something that wouldn't happen just 10 years earlier, much less 20 years earlier, even when you had African-American songs Frequently, they would be record. The recorded version would be exclusively by white artists, and so race, as always with American music, is deeply entwined with this book. But I want to get back a little bit to John Philip Sousa, the great band leader and, and author of Stars and Stripes Forever. But it also makes clear in this book something I didn't know that he was one of the great popularizers of ragtime, and that was just part of a very varied offering that his band would present when they played, that they would play not not just the marches that they're still famous for, but also uh, the current hits, including ragtime tunes and the unfortunately named coon song genre, but also classical songs, and that there was really very little blurring between what was seen as high highbrow art and lowbrow art. It was all in there together, and you were trying to use the pop songs to draw in an audience, and then elevate them a little bit with some classical or, or semi-classical stuff. And Europe is very much a student of Sousa in that regard. I mean, the kind of music he played, even though it had multiple banjos in it and is a stepping stone towards jazz, ultimately to me is still marching band music. But the Sousa point I want to get at is he recognized the dangers of recorded music. And, and as someone who had been a leader in this 19th century popularization of playing music, where 
every town had their own marching band, where every middle class household had a piano and people learned to play instruments. You know, fathers would gather on the porch after work with their guitars and fiddles and play and sing. And, you know, one of the things Wall talks about in this book, and I think he quotes Charles Rosen, is that whenever a new form of music, when, whenever we gain something through a new form of music or a new form of musical technology, we lose something as well. And I think Sousa is right on the money about something big that we've lost. And we didn't lose it completely in the 20th century. And I think that that's one of the things that makes 20th century music so special is that you had things like Motown, which was a recorded musical medium or the, you know a company that presented recorded music but their musicians were these incredible jazz musicians that were very well educated musically and and knew a lot more than they needed to know to play three minute pop hits yeah i mean you know the 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 Sousa quote that they have that, that wald puts in the the beatles book that laments the loss of of music as this this disciplinary force and this type of you know cultural sharing that builds community and and, and these sort of things. I was kind of you know I was kind of uh, uh, unconvinced or unmoved by that because I think that that at least through the 20th century music continued to be something that people pursued and you found in in every one of these little subcultures people who bore down into learning how to play music, learning how to share music within their little subcultures, et cetera. And it in that uh, while the level of expertise, and I, it's not always clear to me that you know everybody that sat around playing in a parlor and, and you know knew how to play two or three of the popular songs were fluent in music, certainly not the way, you know, sesh players are, the guys that are in the session, like you're saying, session artists are amazing. And, uh, and that is something, but, but even if they aren't like well-schooled musicians, people still bore down into music and shared it culturally and continue to do that and continue to, even though the uh, ability for things to be popular to be widely popular, the the way that happens has changed. Uh, I think that the music continues to be something that people share with each other and, and care about about as much as they, as they did before. I think that Wald is absolutely, what I do agree with Wald saying is that for the most part throughout time, uh, uh, throughout the time of recording, people who listen to music in a recorded way, they're not, they don't care about it the way like maybe you or I do, or that Wald does, you know, with our stacks of records and, and our, our sort of, uh, you know, efforts to, to corner an encyclopedic knowledge of this kind of stuff. They just sit in their cars, they sit around with friends, and they're just, they listen to what's on, they have some of their favorite songs or whatever. They don't have huge record collections. They don't catalog it. They don't even necessarily remember the names of the bands or the songs. They don't know the words. They sing the words to themselves for years in ways that aren't correct, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that, uh, uh, you know, the concerns that somehow music was, was being cheapened by recordings or that we were losing, you know, communal aspects of the music, I'm not sure I'd buy that. And I think that, 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 that Wald's book kind of 
really complicates any sort of statement along those lines because it's it's really the story of, of you know a like 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 uh escaping from the delta i mean one of the things he wants to do is is demonstrate like you, you mentioned earlier that you have all these sort of genres and that the artists kind of meld all that kind of stuff together right they meld all these different influences and sources as they come across them and because they're playing live and trying to please varying audiences they're trying to master these varying approaches and so what becomes popular and what enters the siloing that occurs with marketing and therefore what gets uh, uh, sort of carried forward you know through recordings into the future and, and, and gets remembered is not necessarily the way the artists themselves valued the music. It's not necessarily the way they presented it in a live setting. And it wasn't necessarily what influenced them to create the things that we end up hearing all these years later in those recordings. Uh, and, and so I, I, I think that, that those are some of the more interesting uh, uh, thrusts of, of the book, as opposed to, you know, concerns that recording created losers that we've forgotten about. And certainly I, I wouldn't argue that there are people that lost jobs, et cetera, from time to time uh, as big bands fell apart or as, you know, other dance venues became uh, less and less used. But overall, I think that the, the story is just about these kind of shifts that occur and, and the things that are visible and invisible to us, you know, as we try to, to remember as a result of recording. We wouldn't even be talking about it if it weren't for the recordings. That's true. And one thing that, that Walt does that was valuable to me because I hadn't really thought it through or understood it before was talking about the role of James Reese Europe's partners, the Castles, who popularized dance. And Wald really hammers home that the early 20th century was really the first time that public dancing between strangers, dancing as coupled pairs, was socially acceptable. That, that you obviously had dancing prior to that, but it would typically be in private homes and sort of like a Jane Austen setting or a country barn dance. And in all circumstances, the parents of the young women in particular who were dancing would know exactly who their daughter was dancing with at all times. And in the 20th century with its anonymous modern atomized society, suddenly young women were moving to the city, getting jobs and going out dancing on their own with complete strangers. And that's something we take for granted as a given, but it was brand new and scandalous in the teens when the castles are dancing to James Reese Europe and introducing things like the foxtrot and the tango to popular culture. And I think that's important. And I think Wald's emphasis on music as a dance medium that you know, throughout most of the 20th century, at least up into the late 1960s, musicians' bread and butter was playing for dancers. So therefore, they had to play a wide variety of songs because people just wanted to dance and they didn't want to focus on the music. And that it's a very different experience to dance to music versus sitting down at home and listening closely to music or, or sitting down in a concert hall and listening to a symphony. Uh, as as an art piece that demands your full attention. Dance music, you're mostly focused on the beat and your partner and your expression of that beat. And so he's kind of aligned with the Poptimism movement, which I didn't know enough about the history of that when I interviewed him. So I was kind of cringing at myself when I when I was 
incorrectly, <laughs> you know, crediting him with starting that. And I'm glad he corrected me on that. And I, I have read the Celine Dion book that kicked off the Poptimism movement. And anyway, I, I think it's one of his virtues that Wald, although he's a boomer, his criticism, I think, is more aligned with Gen X. I was actually surprised when I found out his age, because I think his thinking and other things is a little bit advanced from most of his contemporaries. But let's cue up our second song and hear a little bit of Paul Whiteman. And this is a tune, one tune that, that Wall did name as a Paul Whiteman tune that he thought had staying power and was still uh, well worth hearing in the 21st century. And this is Paul Whiteman with a couple of ringers. He's got Bing Crosby on lead vocals and the legendary cornet player, Big Spiderbeck. And this is From Monday On. And that was Paul Whiteman with Bing Crosby on lead vocals and Big Spiderbeck as the feature soloist doing From Monday On. Did you go back as a funk uh, uh, while reading this book and talking about it and listen to some Paul Whiteman to prepare for this show? I didn't go back and listen to any Paul Wyman in preparation for the show, but I've been, you know, I've had Paul Whiteman records in my, my personal collection for some time. And, and I have owned that, uh, the King of Jazz film for some time. And I'm pretty, pretty familiar with him. And, uh, you know, that being said, I, I had never placed Paul Whiteman in historical contexts, really. I mean, I knew that people kind of, uh, denigrated his his contributions in certain circles, and that some of it had to do with you know the dynamics of trying to decide how important uh, African American contributions to jazz are, and trying to guard against African Americans being overlooked or, or what have you. Uh, but you know, I didn't really realize that that Paul Whiteman was not you know, appreciated because, as I said, I've, I've got his recordings and, and I was aware that he was popular and, and I like those records. You know, I'm not bothered by any of those records. I didn't find them to be uh, to be boring or bland or anything like that. I, you know, until I started reading uh, the books that that you and I have been discussing, though I'm a historian and though I'm a music hound and a culture hound. I kind of didn't bother to try and put, you know, all of these older songs, right? The pre-World War II sort of uh, uh, collection of music and artists into, you know, chronological order or order of cultural importance, you know, much beyond just here's Louis Armstrong, uh, here's Duke Ellington, that kind of thing. And so it, it, reading the Wald books uh, it is, is great because he tries to, to take you back and make you think about what the artists were experiencing and how that plays into marketing and the creation of genre 
and popularity, especially in this in this Beatles book. And it's it's you know it's real interesting when we talk about Whiteman. I, I one of the things I thought was really interesting about this book and also about uh, uh, Ward's rock and roll history is that, but especially about Walt's book, is that there's this talk through much of the book about jazz and its importance for the creation of popular music, its importance as a backbone for, uh, you know, folk music being uh, uh, complicated and branching out and, and sewing together different genres there and, and such. But as we get to rock and roll, it completely sort of falls off off the radar, you know, just as it gets to like bop and it becomes complicated and, and harder to dance to and it becomes intellectual and and, and perhaps even, you know, uh, ideologically contentious, et cetera. It just disappears from the picture, you know, even though there are, are great recordings and these, these immense kind of problem solving almost moments you know that we have with free jazz and with uh, uh fusion and, and and the effort to overcome rock and roll's ascendance you know or to like find room for itself with you know jukebox hits like uh, uh the sidewinder by lee morgan and, and, and that sort of thing and i think that's it's it's interesting that that jazz kind of just evaporates in the narrative that Wald presents. Uh, you know, I don't know what you think about that. Or, or, I, I, I think that's a fascinating point. And, and I understand why he did it. It's sort of for the same reasons that Ed Ward didn't include jazz in his history of rock and roll. It's because there's this bifurcation in the middle of World War II. Jazz follows Charlie Parker down this much more intellectually demanding sit down and listen direction. And popular music follows Louis Jordan and keeps dancing and laughing. And right. I think it would be very hard for Wald to tell his story and spend much time on jazz because it's not just Charlie Parker and the African-American jazz tradition. There's also people like Stan Kenton who come out, who are white, who come out of the big band sure. market and go into this art direction as well. And you know, all very worthy musicians, you know, Kenton's got Art Pepper and other featured soloists, and he's frequently cited, you know, as a, a key figure in the third wave of, of sort of blending classical and jazz musics. But from Wald's perspective, who's trying to chart the history of dance music, jazz becomes art music. And in a way, you could almost make the argument how Miles Davis destroyed jazz uh, and do the same book, you know. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I mean, I guess the reason that I brought it up is because to me, what happens with jazz and, and the road that sort of the most vibrant and exciting changes in jazz takes, right, kind of represents this this bookish, backroomish kind of uh, uh, problem that he he wants to talk about. But for whatever reason, he He's willing to talk about how the Beatles kind of helped to remove rock and roll from the dance floor or represent that that kind of thing, but he doesn't want to talk about jazz doing that. I get it. It's it's a it's a it's it's an expansive field and and therefore maybe more weight than needs to be pulled by the book. 
but given the fact that jazz is so important to so much of the book, it just was a kind of uh, a stark, a, a stark uh, um, sort of absence, you know. Yeah, it's I, an unanswered question that that he but, kind of leaves hanging. You, know, I, I, you were you were mentioning that uh, you know talking about white and black artists and jazz, et cetera. And I and one of the things I think that's interesting about the Wald book. Uh, and actually both of his books is that he he's constantly not only trying to present to the reader uh, ways to trouble their siloed sort of expectations about genre and uh, and and that sort of thing, but he's he also goes out of his way to repeatedly demonstrate that white and black artists were influenced by each other and enjoyed each other's music in ways that you would not necessarily uh, assume if you simply went by uh, the genres and by you know the markers that you find in the bins at the record store or even the discussions that would happen in the trade papers, et cetera. And I, I you know, that that I think is one of the other great strengths of of Wald's approach and uh, and his efforts to sort of uh, complicate these stories is that it, uh, it brings to mind that, you know, what you think, you know, is not always the case. And in, in fact, it's often the opposite of what you might expect. Absolutely. And I think it occurs to me that one artist that he did talk about at some length, who does come out of the pop jazz swing tradition of the thirties, and does go into an artsy direction is Frank Sinatra. And he spends a fair amount of time talking about, you know, basically Frank Sinatra 2.0, the post from here to eternity, Capitol Records era Sinatra, the guy who went from making hit singles to making hit albums and things like songs for swinging lovers and in the wee small hours and only the lonely that are essentially precursors of Sgt. Pepper's. They're full blown concept albums that are meant to, be listened to seriously or put on your bachelor pad for a hot makeout session, which he also talks about that, you know, there was a lot of market overlap between Frank Sinatra's albums and Nelson, Nelson Riddle and what Jackie Gleason was doing with these sort of Muzak lounge albums featuring, you know, scantily clad women on the cover. And that it was part of a whole lifestyle of, you know, come up and see my bachelor pad with the bar and the hi-fi and, and let's put some albums on and see what happens in the dim light. But you know, Frank does kind of leave the dance floors behind, although this next song I'm going to play is one, it's a single that Frank Sinatra put out in 1955 that I was completely oblivious to, and I consider myself a little bit of a Frank Sinatra head, but this is a song I hadn't heard before, and it was a Frank attempt to hit the teenage market in 1955 called Two Hearts, Two Kisses by Frank Sinatra. Hey, one heart is not enough to baby. Hearts makes you feel crazy. One kiss makes you feel so nice. Two kisses put you in paradise. Two hearts, two kisses make one love. Two hearts beat as one dare. Two arms make me know you care. I have plenty of love. And that was Frank Sinatra aiming for the teenage market in 1955 with two hearts, two kisses. A little bit of a doo-wop sound. I thought it was a fun listen, but it goes back and ties into 
Walt's point about how artists abandon the dance floor, go for bigger statements aimed at adult audiences, and kind of leave the pop or at least the teen market behind. And, and it's a process that the Beatles are going to repeat in the 60s to some extent. And I think that his arguments about, and mentioning you know, Rosen's quote about when things are gained, things are lost. And the other thing that, that was interesting that I hadn't thought about is that one of the reasons it's difficult for older people to appreciate new forms of music is that when you learn to listen to music, you, you learn to listen for certain qualities. And whenever there's a new form of music, not only are there new sounds that you're not trained to listen to, but some of the things that you view as the most important bulwarks of musical appreciation are missing. And that to me is like explains so much of like why say Buddy Rich responds to Elvis by drawing a square in the air. Because Buddy Rich is somebody who's keyed in to complicated harmonic patterns and he hears this yokel playing three chord songs and just completely writes him off. And and I think that is a good and useful explanation of the difficulty of older generations of appreciating the music of their followers. Well, I mean, it's definitely the case that you you almost have to become practiced at uh, accepting, quote unquote, the new, right? And, uh, you know, I, the way Wald discusses uh, uh, generation after generation having to, A, you know, establish what they, them, each generation considers their own, and then having to deal with uh, uh, the popularization of some new form that leaves their preferred, you know, uh, uh, artistic expressions sort of in the dust. Uh, it dovetails really nicely with the fact that artists are always trying to like find new audiences and always trying to keep audiences. They're always worried about, you know, am I, am I too old? Do I skew to an older demographic? It, it, is, is my period of growth over? And some of that does come out, as you were saying, with these kind of cross-genre expressions. You know, you've got, you know, Frank Sinatra attempting to enter the teen market. You've got jazz artists that want to be considered serious, but they also want to sell records. And so some of them have, you know, uh, uh, you know, scantily clad women with their shoes off sitting on a, on a, on a candlelit, you know, living room floor <laughs> listening to blue note records and, 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 you know, high cultural expressions, but still portending, you know, a makeout session. You have the Beatles wanting to play various types of music, cramming it all into to their sort of march of artistic development, et cetera, all the way through to where when they become like this sort of chamber pop band that's very adult, it's still the case that at that very time, they're also the, the, the sort of inspiration for bubblegum pop and, and lots of teeny bopper type music, you know? And, and you have an interesting sort of cascade that comes down from the Beatles and psychedelia and all of these, these kind of more, more difficult and challenging cultural events that still kind of goes from uh, uh, yesterday and today and Rubber Soul and Revolver, say, down to the monkeys, who are known as a kind of, you know, boy, boy band that was put together by you know, TV executives, et cetera, but they were part of something that was also very 
uh, uh, challenging and subversive even, and artistically varied in ways that are often overlooked. And then cascading down from the monkeys, you have songwriters who are kind of just, you know, kind of struggling to get noticed and then receiving notice as a result of providing songs for bands like the monkeys. And I'm, I'm thinking of like voice and heart or even Neil Diamond, uh, Neil Diamond or, or, or Harry Nilsson, all the, you know, it, the, one of the strengths of this book is that kind of, it kind of demonstrates that, that again, there's what you see, which looks like, oh, you know, the monkeys are a, uh, a sort of prefab group, right? It's a prefab four. But beneath that, there's a lot of, of, of artistic energy and effort that simply wants to be creative and to have an audience and to make statements that are both cultural and, and important in some ways and in other instances that are just fun and easy to listen to. Many artists want to want to sort of dip their beak into both of those those glasses, so to speak. And uh, one of the strengths of this book is it gives you the opportunity to sort of exercise a flexibility with with your own like observation of culture, mass cultural production, and mass cultural pr uh, consumption, right? Yeah. And. That's something that can carry off into other elements of life, you know, whether it's politics or religion or what have you. A lot of the book is about flexibility. It's about the ability that artists have to adapt to things that change, to audiences that change, to technologies that change, and to quickly find ways to use those technologies so that they can keep making music and keep making a living by by doing it you know and that's a, an issue that was faced by musicians back in the 20s and it you know it goes all the way up to the very present day you know i'm i'm reminded this is probably rock and roll nerdiness you know 101 <laughs> but uh i'm reminded of like you know the 90s you had this explosion of music based on underground uh, musical ideas and and sort of commercial practices where you had all these underground clubs and all these underground labels that had for 10, 15 years been creating a sort of audience that suddenly burst through. The major labels figured out a way to sell to these people. And so all these, these indie rock, alternative rock, underground rock boats were kind of elevated by the arrival of Nirvana, et cetera. Yeah. And within that, you had bands as, you know, there's, there's the band The Jesus Lizard, who is this very confrontational, dark, aggressive band led by a lead singer whose gimmicks, you know, uh, Wald talks about bands using gimmicks to be crowd pleasers. And uh, the question of whether that's true art or not. And, and, and how that's perceived by many to be uh, a sort of degrading trick or what have you. But I mean, you know, the Jesus Liver led by this crazy singer and his gimmick is to, to pull his scrotum out of his pants and squeeze it until it shines <laughs> while the band plays, while the band plays like complicated. Uh, uh, well, they're basically Led Zeppelin in, up there. 
instrument, basically Led Zeppelin, except this like really dark version of Led Zeppelin, right? But at the same time, you know, the bass player is an accountant who writes down like how much they make at every show. And he wrote down how much he made it, it, you know, every show for his prior band, you know, an awesome band's fantastic. And his big takeaway from the way that the Jesus Lizard managed the sort of balance between art and commerce is that because they paid attention to commercial issues and monetary issues, they were able to buy houses while the other bands who may not have been so careful or, or weren't concerned with those kind of things ended up at the end of, you know, that run of independent music having its heyday, they ended up with nothing. Like L7 and, is a classic example. <laughs> like, like, like so many bands, right? Yeah. And so there's this kind of, there's this story within how the, the Beatles destroyed rock and roll that's about you know, people that want to be musicians finding a way to to make a living at it. Whether whether it's whether it's James Europe, who is an, an, an absolutely fascinating character that you are absolutely right, totally overlooked, does not show up very often in the studies and the surveys. You, there's a quote by Wald that uh, uh, that talks about uh, uh, Europe as somebody who was willing to, was it, I think it was Europe, who was willing to eat, he, he was playing Yes, for, he's uh, dish well, soap. Dish, they'd serve him dishwater at one of these high society they him, Exactly. And, when, and, and he's like, I'm going to, I'm not going to rock the boat so much as to even avoid drinking dishwater put in front of me as soup. Right. Yeah, that's like that's an extreme example, but it's it it demonstrates that you know people are there making this music, and and it's their way of life, and there's a strong part or there's a, a considerable portion of the audience that's there simply to enjoy it, right? And there are going to be these artists out there who are trying to tap into that, and they don't want to disrupt it, uh, you know. Glenn Miller, et cetera. They don't want to disrupt the sweet experience of the music with uh, responses to to cultural issues. Yeah, and and I, th- I think that's a key thing. And and by going from the beginning of recorded music from John Philip Sousa to the Beatles, <clears throat> he can't help but talk about racial issues. And I think that his discussions of Burt Williams and James Reese Europe and the difficulties that African-American artists, I mean, and these are the first wave of African-American artists that are really getting a shot as performers and to be on the bill at Broadway shows and to make records, but man, did they pay a price and have to put up with a lot of humiliation that even artists just one decade later, Bessie Smith and Louis Armstrong, for example, were not served dishwater and and did not have to perform in blackface and and go through all these indignities that they did in the 20s. But I find Wald's book especially useful for explaining something that I've struggled with for a long time. And that's the difference between the incredibly integrated 1964 Tammy show, where you have James Brown and the Rolling Stones and the Beach Boys and Jerry and the Pacemakers and Smokey Robinson and the Miracles all thrown in together, and it makes perfect sense. It's one music performed by African-Americans and 
Anglo-Americans and Anglo-Europeans, all one seamless thing. Yet three years later at the Monterey Pop Festival and then five years later at Woodstock, there's this, even though you've got Otis Redding and Booker T and the MGs just killing it at Monterey and you've got Jimi Hendrix as one of the breakthrough stars, it very much feels like that. The the black music is alien and other than the white music that's the mainstream of those issues. And I thought Wald did a good job of explaining that. Let me queue up one song and I'll let you respond to that. And that's... This is uh, Phil Spector's production of I Can Tina Turner's River Deep Mountain High. I was a little girl, I had a break up, only doll I've ever owned. Now I love you just the way I love that break down. but only now my love has grown, and it gets That was Phil Spector producing I Can Tina Turner's version of River Deep Mountain High, the song that infamously broke Spector's back in the American marketplace and, and showed that Spector had lost his command of American dance floors. It's a big hit in England, big influence on Procol Harum and other art rock groups, but a failure on its own terms as a piece of R&B popular dance music. So... Yuri, last point we're going to have time to hit in any depth. What what are your thoughts on Wall's analysis of this bifurcation between white rock and black R&B funk and soul? Well, I, I you know, I'm I'm sort of torn on it. I mean, I, I see what he's talking about and it it's it's certainly the case that the African Americans largely you know, not withstanding living color and a few uh a few other sort of uh, exceptions that rock and roll was abandoned by African-Americans and that the, as, as rock and roll grows past, you know, the Beatles and the white album and all that, and, and, and those type of recordings, there's a, an emphasis on artistry, et cetera, that leaves the dance floor. And that begins to look at African-American music, and its crowd-pleasing uh, tendencies in, in varying ways. So you have you have James Brown and, and a lot of the funk. I mean, that was that was enjoyed by plenty of, of, of white individuals. And uh, I don't think that in in that instance, it, the fact that rock and roll began to look white and funk and soul begins to look black meant that there weren't some crossovers, although. I think more white people listen to funk music and more white people listen to soul music than black people listen to like Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath or heavy metal, et cetera. Right. Yeah. So, but there uh, still were plenty there, of black fans of those genres, just a minority. There were, yeah, there were, there were it, it, but I also think that it's important to keep in mind that, that there were other uh, undercurrents that sort of, that were involved with this. And, and one of those undercurrents, I think, is that, uh, you know, with with the arrival of recordings and this ability for people to listen to recordings uh, that offered a sort of verite that had not existed before. And certainly for, for African-Americans, one of the major issues, uh, aside from, there, there's two major issues. One, access to 
full market. To, you know, if you're an African-American businessman in the early 20th century, for instance, it was very hard to get your product into white markets. This was especially true of cultural products, you know, African-American filmmakers, et cetera. They just could not get their movies in, into white distribution or into white film houses, that sort of thing. There's also the need to correct what some have referred to as a sort of counterfeited view of, of blackness or African-Americanness and to sort of uh, show what the real is, what the real African-American is like, what the real Negro is like. And you have these mass media uh, forms, especially film, and, and as recordings become more and more uh, controlled by high fidelity standards, uh, musical recordings that allowed you know African American artists to more and more present to the public what they were about, what they were experiencing, and to send these you know, wild talks at various points in the book. He, he, he writes about African artists trying to break into uh, uh, the white market, and these recordings were. Uh, something that slowly by slowly, I think, introduced uh, uh, white to the experience of black culture, even if it's once or twice removed. You know, when young uh, white Americans are going into their bedrooms as teeny boppers and listening to Chuck Berry or Little Richard or even something as, as, as innocuous as Chubby Checker, that has an effect and it starts, starts to make it more difficult for the policing of these racial boundaries, et cetera. And that begins to help African-Americans start to try and figure out ways to break further into uh, uh, these mass media markets. And it's, I think it's a precursor to things like rap. I mean, he, uh, uh, Wald was talking in, in, the segment you did with him about how radical uh, rapper's delight was and the Sugar Hill Gang. And, uh, you know, rap is something that has made a lot of money for, for some African-American artists slash entrepreneurs, businessmen. Uh, and it's something that they've made a lot of money because they've been able to break into these white enclaves, the suburbs, et cetera and sell even the most radical forms of rap, you know, gangster rap, et cetera, to thousands and thousands of white people, you know? And millions, so yeah. Millions of them, yeah. And so I, you know, I can see where uh, the experience of all of the different kinds of music being on a single station, right? And, and having to sit and listen to each other, you know, to different genres and to the favorite songs of, you know, different subcultures, et cetera, all getting sort of poured into one uh, uh, or, or, or sort of placed out on a single tabletop and, and having to listen to them, that that would shape Wald's tastes and, and, and sort of inform whatever laments and, and losses that he might want to point to. But I think that there's, you know, as, as you said, and as Wald does it, there are also gangs. And I think that, that 
you know, the advent of recordings allowed African-Americans to fight back with verite and with the reality of their culture and the reality of their experience and their creative geniuses, et cetera. And that, uh, that shouldn't be overlooked in this story. Uh, I don't, I don't think that it's, it's foregrounded in the story, but I also don't think it's utterly absent in, you know, how the Beatles destroyed rock and roll. Definitely not. And and there's so much more we could talk about, but I think we've had a pretty good discussion and we'll wrap it here. And Yuri, I look forward to having you back. I want to get you on to discuss Edward's second volume of Rock and Roll History and the series of conversations I had with Ed. And that'll wrap up this season of Let It Roll. So thanks, Yuri, for coming back on the show. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Enjoy it all the time and look uh, forward to um, the next go round. All right. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, we'll wrap up our eighth season. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll is available from Oxford University Press and can be found wherever fine books are sold. It's not easy being the one everyone counts on to keep your operation running, no matter the weather or supply chain hiccup. But we get you Raymond in Buffalo, Maria in Miami, and Jules and Troy. Taking control of everything that's under your control. At Granger, we're here for you with high-quality supplies for every industry, plus real-time product availability and access to experts ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. By now, you know that sound. It's the sound of the Home Depot. But what about that sound? You're listening to a set of GE appliances, complete with all you need to keep food fresh, dishes clean, and everything else stress-free. Making this the sound of savings on top brand appliances. The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Get up to 25% off select GE appliances right now. Offer valid January 5th through January 25th, 2023. U.S. only. See store or online for details. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 